It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. All eyes on Washington, D.C. on a number of fronts. I want to start with the latest. House Speaker Paul Ryan has announced that he will not seek re-election in November. Uh, we are expecting to hear comments from him. He is going to make uh, a statement, and we will be airing that live as well as the uh, question and answer session after that. Uh, here to give us a sense of what the context is around Paul Ryan's uh decision not to seek re-election is Marty Shanker, chief content officer for Bloomberg. Marty, put this into perspective to us. Why now? Well, it's interesting timing. About a month ago, there was a Politico magazine piece which suggested that Ryan was not going to stand for re-election, which the people around him vigorously denied. And so now a month later, it's true. Um, I think Paul Ryan has basically decided that this is a, I mean, you never wanted the speaker job to begin with. You sort of took it out of uh, dedication to the Republican Party. And it's a very, really tough job. He's, by a lot of measures, he's done a really good job, especially in fundraising. A lot of people were concerned about his ability to raise funds for Republicans in the context of his predecessor, uh, Boehner, but he's actually outraised him by quite a bit. Okay, I just want to push back a little bit because sure. uh, a lot of people are suggesting that Paul Ryan is, is not going to seek re-election because his chances of winning are increasingly slim and that this sort of uh, is a harbinger moment for the Republican Party and sort of seeks, uh, it, it sort of sets the stage for a Democratic win uh, in the midterms. Well, one of the uh, inside Washington prognosticators right after Ryan's announcement this morning moved the district, Paul Ryan's district in Wisconsin, to likely Republican from solid Republican. So at least in that view, uh, he 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 may have had a, a more difficult time, but he was still expected to be reelected. And now his departure makes it less likely that's going to remain a Republican seat. So uh, you know, yeah, he may have uh, he may have had a more difficult time, but he won by, I think, a 70 percent margin last time around. And I think it was a pretty safe seat if he wanted to keep to keep it. Hey, Marty, I want to pick up on something having to do with the Republican Party. And you mentioned, uh, you know, his uh, success at fundraising for yes. the Republican Party. What kind of Republican Party does he leave behind for his successor to manage? Well, like it or not. It's a Trump Republican Party. 
And as you know, I mean, many uh, people both uh, in the moderate wing of the Republican Party and Democrats certainly have been very critical of the leadership of the Republicans for not being more vocal in their opposition to some of the policies that Donald Trump is pursuing. Um, that said, they're inexorably tied to this president. And um, it becomes even more interesting in the context of the Mueller investigation. Right? Well, that's exactly where I wanted to go with this. I mean, uh, one speculation is that House Speaker Ryan is stepping aside or at least announcing his plans to do so in order to uh, take a harder stance on President Trump. Do you think that there's any merit to that? No. Okay, great. You've asked and answered. Um, no, but no, but, I really don't think <laughs> I, you know, uh, Paul Ryan has said that the special prosecutor Mueller should be kept in the job and complete his, his inquiry. Um, he hasn't had a full throated criticism of Donald Trump's comments on it. Uh, probably, you know, Democrats would like him to be more vocal, but I do not think he's making this decision so that he's now free to talk about it. I don't think you'll be seeing any real profiles and courage out of this guy. Oh. <laughs> um, that said, I, this does come at an interesting point. It's an inflection point in the Mueller investigation and certainly in President Trump's anger toward uh, Mueller as well as uh, Rod Rosenstein. And I'm just wondering, you know, it, does this sort of have implications for the GOP's willingness to uh, push forward or criticize or say, uh, censure President Trump for any consequences that might emerge from firing? Rosenstein. Well, look, as a very practical matter, the fact that he's not running for re-election means that if Donald Trump were to fire Rosenstein, Mueller, Sessions, et cetera, it would, if it did, and it would create a constitutional crisis, Paul Ryan could just basically throw away any political implications to a stance on that move. Uh, so it would, as a practical matter, free him from any political considerations. Then it would just become essentially a moral conscious decision on his part of what stand he takes um, in in the constitutional crisis that would ensue from that. We're speaking with uh, Marty Schenker. He is our chief content officer for Bloomberg as we await comments and a statement from Paul Ryan, current speaker of the House, uh, representative of the Wisconsin First, and he will be announcing that uh, he will not seek a re-election uh, for that position. We're also uh, going to be bringing you live coverage of Mark Zuckerberg, chief executive of Facebook, uh, second day of his two-day testimony uh, before Congress. Um, and, and Marty, I'm sorry to keep harping on the Republican yeah. Party because that you know they're the ones who are going to be left after Paul Ryan exits in January. Um, the rating for the president has actually gone up, right? right? I mean, we're talking about his favorable rating has climbed eight percentage points since before the 2016 election uh, in terms of Republicans. And I'm wondering what positions we can expect the Republicans to take as a result that uh, Speaker Ryan is no longer going to be there to put on the brakes or even add any kind of institutional or traditional Republican uh, uh perspective. Well, you still have Mitch McConnell as Senate leader, and he in some ways speaks for the Republican Party and uh, in Congress in general. Uh, you have McCarthy and Scalise, who are still the, you know, the whip and the number two person in the House. Who has been maybe uh, going to take Speaker Ryan's position if yeah, the Republicans the, hold the House? The, the working theory is that McCarthy will try to do that. Actually, he sought that position before Ryan. 
uh, and could not garner enough votes. And then that's when they turned to Paul Ryan as a unifying force for the Republican Party. So it's probably he's the front runner, but he's by no means a short thing. And there are very fervent uh, Trump supporters in the House who may think that it's time for a truly pro-Trump uh, Republican to take the leadership in the House. Don't forget the midterms are in November, well before Paul Ryan leaves office. So um, it'll be a completely different context when the decision will have to be made, whether in fact it will be majority leader or minority leader of the House when that time comes. All right. So uh, we're right now completely focused on Paul Ryan. Uh, about a half an hour ago, uh, we were completely focused on the relationship uh, between the U.S. and Russia over Syria and some kind of impending missile attack that President Trump is promising via Twitter on Syria in response to the chemical attacks. Where are we with that? Has everybody just simply forgotten about that? And how does this sort of uh, turmoil complicate matters, if at all? Well, I don't, I don't know that the political elements of Paul Ryan's decision not to run for re-election has any impact at all on Syria, but the markets certainly haven't forgotten about it. Um, it, it. It's interesting that the markets haven't actually gone cataclysmically panicked over this. There's a obviously a negative reaction, but it's not huge. Why is that surprising to you? Well, I mean, uh, you know, when you have a president of the United States via Twitter essentially saying we're going to take military action in an area of the world where the Russians and the Iranians have personnel who've warned against doing that, it could be very unsettling. You'd wonder why the S&P 500 is down only four-tenths of a percent, Correct. why it's down only 10 points, and why oil is only up less than, uh, less than a percent. My theory is that the markets are looking at this in some ways like the tariffs issue, that yes, there's a lot of bluster and a lot of strong talk, but uh, ultimately that he might walk this back. My own personal theory is that there are there could very likely be a conversation between Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin. They spoke very recently in the last couple of weeks. That might actually bring bring us back from the brink of military action. I mean, that would be consistent with the way Donald Trump likes to operate, threaten, gets concessions, and back off. You know, there's sort of an interesting twist here with the United Kingdom coming out and saying that they're not sure that the Syrian government did wage a chemical attack at all and that they're not going to cooperate with the U.S. until they have better evidence. How does that factor into this? Well, that's pretty interesting coming from the U.K. who are not even sure that the nerve agent that was used to attack the U.K. Uh, espionage victim uh, was really from Russian origin. So, you know, I, I just think that's political rhetoric. But I, well, I think... it, it might just be political rhetoric, but that means that the U.S. does not have the U.K. on its side in any kind of altercation in Syria, even as France says that they're going to go alongside the U.S. That, from a strategic standpoint, is significant. Yes, it makes it much less politically acceptable, I guess, in a global context for Donald Trump to take unilateral action in Syria. Um, I think the real danger is the Russian response, right? If the U.S. was to take military action and in some way involves Russian troops that are on the ground, it could escalate in a way that no one really wants, but no one can control. So uh, it's a very dangerous situation in Syria. And if Donald Trump decides to go forward without allies, it becomes even more dangerous. 
Well, and the danger also becomes, as you mentioned, that Iran has proxies, if indeed it does have actual military forces it in does. Syria, and uh, that uh, Moscow uh, and uh, Vladimir Putin visiting with the head of Iran in Turkey uh, just last week, I believe, uh, and Turkey, a NATO yes. ally of the United States. Yes, it's very complicated, um, as we all know. And there's also a report from AP earlier this morning that a high-level delegation of Russian officials have arrived in Syria. Yes. Now, is that a kind of shield situation, or it, it, it's suggestive of, of uh, the Russians are really doubling down on their commitment to Assad? You know, and, and just to sort of add a complication to this whole backdrop are the sanctions that the U.S. has placed on Russia, Russia calling it uh, waging uh, economic war on them. And you are seeing the assets in Russia plunge, the ruble continuing to lose value versus the dollar. Uh, you saw, you know, bond yields spike up and they canceled a bond auction because they didn't want to try to raise money in this environment. And right. I'm just wondering, I mean, uh, how much does that sort of up the ante here and and sort of uh, raise the the possibility of military conflict. Well, I, you know, I do think that when in the context of the world stage, the way the U.S. can truly pressure Russia is not through foreign diplomacy, not through the U.N., but on economic sanctions. Um, uh, Vladimir Putin enjoys great popularity within the among the Russian people, but a weakening ruble, if it's over an extended period of time will cause real economic pain. And that is the way to get Russians to change their behavior. Most foreign policy experts say sanctions are the really only effective way of changing their behavior. And taking a look at, uh, for example, the uh, MySex 10, which is the uh, stock exchange in, in Russia, uh, actually uh, higher today, up uh, about nine-tenths uh, of a percent. Not we, adjusted for the ruble. In, in, <laughs> indeed, right, yeah, trying to get your money out, that's a different, uh, different story. Billy House, a congressional reporter for Bloomberg News. Billy, uh, I want to just touch on that first. Did that strike you right. as well as sort of the most noteworthy thing he said? That was very noteworthy, especially when you have some of his own House Republican colleagues, led by Devin Nunez, the House Intelligence Chairman, working right now to try to hold both the uh, Rosenstein and, and Sessions in contempt. So uh, Paul Ryan can say that, and he said he's had assurances that uh, Mueller would not be attacked or fired by the White House. Let's, rem uh, let's see what happens. So he's a lame duck now. What does this do, what, what does this do to the race uh, for his position, uh, given that we've got the midterms between now and uh, when the next Congress takes, uh, takes session? That's a good question. I mean, right now it's been all whispers between the number two House Republican, Kevin McCarthy, and the number three, Steve Scalise. But with Paul Ryan leaving this early, or announcing he will be leaving this early on, I think only Tip O'Neill ever uh, was the last one to not be forced out or go out in some scandal. Um, it leaves a lot of other potential candidates time to start seeing what kind of chips they could collect or call in. And so perhaps names like House Freedom Caucus Chairman Mark Meadows, a friend of Trump's, or even Jim Jordan, or others who may be more moderate, might have time to build some sort of uh, coalitions. 
I think a lot of people on Wall Street are trying to figure out, okay, well, how does this affect policy? How will this uh, directly uh, feed into implications for any cutbacks in social programs to reduce the deficit or any ability to pass infrastructure planning? Can, do you have any insight into that? Well, I, I think, first of all, that was going to all be very difficult anyway in an election year. Um, uh, the Republicans have lost special elections uh, dating back to 2011 on just stating they wanted to voucherize Medicare and that sort of thing. But now that we have a lame duck speaker, uh, and he may think uh, there's a lot of goodwill that would help him get that uh, those policies through. I'm more inclined to believe that he's now a lame lame duck, and none of that will happen. So who will emerge as the leader? Uh, during this period between the now and the election of a new one? Yep. I, th- I think we have uh, a multi-headed monster uh, for the next few months where nobody's actually leading. All right. Billy House, thank you so much for joining us, and good luck with all the uh, future coverage as we continue to monitor who is going to take over House Speaker Paul Ryan's position, as well as the implications for policy in the ongoing Mueller investigation. Thank you. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Here to give us a sense of what we should be focused on from what we've heard so far is Paul Sweeney, U.S. Director of Research and Senior Media and Internet Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Paul, uh, how, how has uh, Mark Zuckerberg fared on day two? I think he's uh, generally doing a pretty good job here. Uh, you know, over the past couple of days, the stock has actually traded fairly well. So I think uh, he hasn't done any damage here. And, um, you know, I think the, the big challenge for uh, Mark here over these two days is to you know, number one, you know, clearly acknowledge that Facebook now has a handle on the full scope of what the issues are here as it relates to data. And I think, you know, that realization didn't really occur really until the last couple of months, I think, in terms of the scope of their responsibility here. Uh, So I think he needs to get that across. I think he is getting that issue across. And then the second issue, maybe more importantly, is that uh, Facebook uh, is equipped um, to deal with these issues. Um, and, you know, most importantly, that they do not need to uh, incur regulatory oversight by Congress or, or any other body. I think that's one of the big issues that Facebook and, you know, tech and social media and the Internet, um, you know, trying to forestall as long as possible. Paul Sweeney, the shares of Facebook, they're down about six tenths of a percent. I want to reference a particular report that was put together by Deloitte, and they worked with Facebook in order to do this. This goes back to 2014. But for reference, uh, they said that Facebook has enabled more than $200 billion of economic activity and four and a half million jobs around the world. Can you liken Facebook to the internet itself and that perhaps that is why this is such a interesting and focused piece of information because 
so many businesses live on Facebook as if Facebook were the internet? Yeah, it's, um, you know, again, Facebook has over 2 billion users uh, on a monthly basis on a global scale. They are obviously everywhere with uh, the notable exception of uh, China, uh, you know, and so they are truly, you know, touching, you know, so many households, so many lives in so many different ways that the social media uh, um, of which Facebook is the largest social media platform has really become one of the main um, utilities of the internet writ large. It used to be simply, uh, you know, search was probably the utility that uh, people utilize the most on the internet. Um, but it's really, I think, social has become, uh, you know, kind of the key aspect. And uh, so, there- but I guess what I was getting at here with the economic effect is it's not just sharing, you know, family photos and details of what you did on your vacation. It is perhaps two people who do not know each other enjoying let's say playing bridge online and through an app that they join through facebook they then are able to play bridge with each other that becomes an economic relationship for not only facebook but also for the companies that are building those specific apps then mark zuckerberg referenced zynga for example the online game creator is that right. an accurate description uh it is it is an accurate description and um so I don't, you know and it's something that you know i'm not sure um a lot of the regulators a lot of the, the politicians the folks asking the con- congressmen uh, asking the questions over the past few days a uh, couple of days you know fully appreciate that and i think that is one of the reasons that whenever there's discussion about uh you know a regulation of the internet coming from congress uh that is what people that is one of the main pushbacks which is the internet and social media have created so much uh, opportunity for people and, and so many jobs and so much uh economic uh growth that you know this is the last thing this industry needs is regulatory oversight but now what's happened in the last couple of months is just the privacy issue has really uh, reared its its ugly head here and, and we've seen privacy regulations out of the eu over the years and they're getting stricter and stricter all the time, affecting companies like Facebook. And Facebook wants to forestall anything like that happening here in the States. All right. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Paul uh, Sweeney, uh, Paul Sweeney, our, our director of North American uh, Research uh, for uh, Bloomberg Intelligence. We've been listening to Mark Zuckerberg testify before the House Energy and Commerce Committee. He was answering questions from Doris Matsui, the uh, congresswoman of Democratic congresswoman from uh, California representing Sacramento. And uh, one of the issues had to do, obviously, with the uh, privacy controls that are afforded to people who actually use Facebook and the ability of commercial organizations, whether they be businesses or indeed uh, political organizations, to actually access that information and then target information that would be directed uh, to to specific interests uh, that they might have. I want to bring in our own Shira Oviday, our Bloomberg Technology Gadfly columnist, to uh, give us a little bit more detail uh, about uh, the uh, congressional hearings. And uh, Shira, I just want to note that uh, I believe that there is a uh, quote from uh, from one of the uh, uh, Gadfly columnists meaning you. Oh, me. Yes. Yes. That says Facebook will keep failing users' trust as long as its business is based on unrestrained hoovering of as much user data as possible. Um, 
Does anything that Mark Zuckerberg said that you heard contradict that? I don't think so. And in part because he rather gracefully avoided directly tackling that question. So what Mark Zuckerberg has now been saying for two days is essentially um, people own all the data that they put out there on Facebook and they have complete control over uh, where and how it's shared, which is not really true. So look, the business model of Facebook is based on um, collecting information from what people voluntarily put on their Facebook pages and things that people are not really aware that Facebook is also getting from you, including um, almost every web page you visit, the apps on your phone, the location as you carry your phone with you across the world, um, information on what you purchase in stores that um, advertisers are taking with them to target ads. And, and this this also includes, and this was interesting because Doris uh, Matsui, uh, the congresswoman from mm -hmm. California, mentioned what happens afterwards. In other words, right. w you may own your data, but once your data is used by a commercial interest, you really don't have any control yeah, it's a, over it. Yeah, it's a canard, this, this issue about ad ownership. No, nothing that has happened to Facebook in the last two days or three weeks of, of controversy has changed its ability and willingness to uh, collect large amounts of activity and information on Americans and you, and and people around the world and yeah. use that to target ads. And, and that's the central problem with Facebook is that its business model is dependent on its ability to have relatively unrestrained data collection. Okay, so on a scale from 1 to 10, 10 being best and 1 being worst, how would you grade yesterday's performance of Mark Zuckerberg? I'm sorry, 10 is the best? Yeah, 10 is the best. I would say it was about an 8. Wow, um, what about today? Uh, it's it's less good today. It, fe it seems like a the um, the questions are more partisan and pointed today, and they're a little less polite. Um, and Zuckerberg looks visibly tired, which is probably reasonable given the day he had. Six hours. Yeah, he took the break. Yeah. Uh, now you know, that's one, right. You're right. We waved off the break yesterday. Yeah, <laughs> today he, he took it. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing that I'm struck by is as this is going on, and uh, some might call it political theater, others might call it, you know, an informational session. Whatever you want to, however you want to characterize it. There's both. Both. Yeah. Uh, headlines crossing that the European Union privacy head said that we are at a start of a new data privacy era and that uh, European Union watchdogs are creating a social media working group on data rights. In some ways, is this the sideshow to what's really happening, which is probably really led by Europe right now? Look, I think it's been true for a long time and continues to be true that European regulators and European consumers, too, are much more skeptical about data collection of Internet companies, including Facebook and, and Google and others. And the European regulators have taken the lead on all this. They are very informed. Um, they are very harsh critics. And yeah, I do think they are leading the world and leading their colleagues in Congress who today um, asked several times about this new European data protection rule and whether and how Facebook would implement that in the United States, which I think was interesting that they're looking to Europe as kind of a model. Can we just uh, maybe just go you know, go one step deeper on that, because having said that, is that because the governments in Europe already have all of the data they want and more on their citizens? The ability to uh, basically uh, enforce the 
carrying of identity cards or registration in local police stations. I mean, you know, you go and you try to live in any kind of municipality in the European Union or indeed in any European country outside the European Union, and you're going to end up in some governmental office pretty quick, pretty quickly rather, um, that identifies who you are, where you are, what you do, why you're there, and what job you have. So it's not as if they are doing this out of some altruistic reason for personal privacy, but it may be because the government doesn't want any competition when it comes to Facebook. Yeah, that's a fair question. I don't think I know enough about the the data collection policies of um, European governments to answer that question confidently. I, I do think, though, there is genuine concern among U- European regulators about commercial entities and um, what information they get from their citizens. Uh, and some of it may be trying to protect European companies from competition from American companies, mm. particularly internet companies. You know, there is no really big and powerful global uh, internet companies based in Europe with the Spotify, notable, maybe? Yeah, it's a little bit of a different animal. But yeah, right. I, I, there is no sort of Facebook or Google of Europe, uh, or at least not the size of Facebook and Google. So I, there may be some some competitive issues at play here, but mostly I think it is genuine concern on the part of European regulators and governments to protect their citizens. So aside from what we've talked about so far, what are the highlights to you up till now? Um, Look, I, I think the highlights to me are that there is now general agreement, although the devil's in the details, from both Facebook and lawmakers, both Republican and Democratic, that there needs to be some more regulation of Facebook or other internet and social media companies. And look, I don't, I'm skeptical that anything will happen, but the fact that, again, all of those sides, Democrats, Republicans, and Facebook itself have acknowledged the, the vague need for regulation, that feels like a watershed moment. Okay, so then who is going to be responsible for that? Because it's not going to be Congress, right? I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, look, um, this is... Uh, this is a midterm election year. It seems hard to imagine that anything will get substantive will get passed this year. And then honestly, Facebook may be just hoping to play out the clock that by next year, Congress will have moved on to something else. Uh, Shira, the um, uh, the consent decree that the uh, that the Federal Trade Commission has with uh, Facebook was referenced several times, and several times Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, didn't seem to have any detailed knowledge of that uh, consent decree. Uh, Does that surprise you? Yeah, it was a little bit strange. I suspect he was probably trying to avoid getting himself trapped in some line of questioning that he couldn't control. Um, But yes, it did seem odd that, for example, he... He was asked whether Facebook had to pay a financial fine right. from the FTC in 2011, which they did not. The FTC does not really have the ability to do that in the case that happened to Facebook. And it was weird that he couldn't answer that. So uh, what are the implications here for the other big social media companies? I, I mean, I, I'm a little bit torn. So on the one hand... Um, the other internet companies like Google and Twitter have kind of gotten a pass the last few weeks as the world's attention has focused on Facebook's crisis, but they have almost exactly the same basic issues as Facebook, which is their business models are dependent on harvesting data and using that data about people to target ads. They have also faced numerous questions about whether they strike the right balance between um, uh, 
you know, creating a free and open exchange of ideas online and making sure that people aren't being harassed, incited into violence or otherwise abused on their platforms. And again, Facebook, Google and Twitter and others all have those same issues and they at least for now, haven't had to tackle those. Sure, Ovide, thank you very much for being with us. Our Bloomberg Gadfly columnist for all things technology, great columns on Facebook and great coverage of Facebook. And of course, uh, we're always following you on Twitter at Shira Ovide. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.